And so we, we really need to begin to think about, okay, if we have to go where he goes, there's also tied to that this sense that we need to go as he goes. So not just end up where he is, but to do it like he does it. That's what discipleship's about. And the church has for too long throughout history had their own vision of missionary, i.e. think crusades. That's not what God had in mind. Turn or burn where we literally burn you if you don't come with us. You know, in the in and out, the strong markers. That's not mission. That's not what he wants to do. But when you get to thinking about what we're going to talk about today, it's brain-bending. It makes us feel like this kid's like, ah, my brain hurts. But you have to be thinking about this. Everything that Jesus calls us into is new learning, isn't it? I mean, he's so different than the way we are here on planet Earth. That's why he got criticized all the time. They say, like, the Pharisees would say, well, you don't wash your hands like us. Or you don't, you don't dress like us. Your disciples don't do what we do. And the biggest beef we have with you, Jesus, is you sit with weird people. But God has come to call weird people. I'm proof positive of this. And he wants to reach them by drawing in more weirdos who can meet more, more weirdos. But the methodology he does it is brain-bending. And so we really have to think about when Jesus goes on mission, how does he pack a suitcase? And we're going to do some heavy lifting with our brains, and we're going to pro- process this. And I want you to be thinking, the context of what we're talking about today isn't about going on a mission trip. It's about every morning when you wake up, and you walk out to your kitchen and you see your family, the mission begins. How you are and who you are in that moment is missional. And as you walk out your door and you get in your car and you head down the road, you are living as Christ's letter to the world and you're on mission. So it's in the day-to-day, the moment-by-moment, everyday relationships that he wants us to pack the bag. So we're going to call this packinality. How does Jesus want us to pack our bags because we know every relationship we step into, we already have a certain set of baggage, a certain set of ideas. Are you tracking with me about this? That every relationship, and you need this, you know people by how you've known others and certain looks. Uh, We always discover this when we're first married that, oh, that's what that look means with your, your spouse. It's like it's trying to send you the message and you're not quite caught up on that, it's because we have a certain way of interpreting that look otherwise. And so, here, this, I'll give you an example. Say you're driving down the car, or down the road in your car, and you are surrounded by this group of people. How do you feel? Cool. cool. Some people are like, cool. That's like a death wish. How do you feel? Nervous. You, you kind of go, uh-oh. This actually happened to us once when we were on vacation. All of a sudden, we're swarmed by motorcycle guys, and my son Joe thought it was cool. I thought, this is it. We're going to die. This is how we're going to see Jesus. But you see, there's a certain sense of bias. We interpret that group of people by what we've known in the past. But if you were to pull up behind one of these people, this is what you'd see on their back. Sons of thunder, heaven bound. They're on our team. And you go, Really? And you really take confidence. Jesus is Lord. Yes, he is, you know. And then you, you, 
you point to the sticker on the back of your car like, I've got a little fish too, let me in. And, you know, you kind of slide in the group and you just sit back in your little prayers and you go, yeah, I'm one of the boys. I'm a son of thunder too. But we have a bias. And it, it's, it's, it stands there. And this, this, this bias, we're moving through life, even, even in relationships that we have, that we've known and we've formed, even our spouses or our kids, we live in this danger zone where we know them. And we put them in a freeze frame. And you see this with Jesus. Like, they can't get out of the freeze frame because they say, aren't you the guy that came out of this town where, the, where you were an illegitimate son and da-da-da-da-da. They, they couldn't get out of their mindset about Jesus. And if we're not careful, we can't get out of our mindset about certain people, even the people that we're with day-to-day. And one of the greatest dangers of really being on mission with God is moving through life in a way that we're always seeing people as God sees them. Always looking through his eyes. And he sees people way differently than the way you and I see him. Isn't this true? And so um, a guy who's a Christian sociologist started looking about missional efforts, and he wrote this book. If you do any kind of service or, or kind of mission work, this is a great book to read. When Helping Hurts. It's very interesting because he wanted to see why, why when we do these missional service projects, why if the kingdom really is coming, why doesn't that have a lasting impact and change on the groups that we're serving? Good question, right? Now, he did great research. What he did was he started following groups that did these kind of service projects. And the people who were going to receive... He would give them a scale before they received and after they received about how they viewed themselves. And he would also give the same scale to the people who were doing the service project. You know what he, dis- he discovered in his research over and over again? That the way that we were doing mission like that was actually creating a greater divide. And the people that would come needing the service would actually leave feeling worse about themselves, feeling more helpless feeling more destitute. And worse yet, the people that provided the service left that opportunity, that kind of mission experience, feeling more empowered and feeling superior to others. That's not what we want, right? We want to close the gap. So this book, really, it rocked a lot of people who do traditional missions. It got them thinking, we've got to close that great divide because we don't come to serve people in the name of Christ in a way to create a bigger gap, right? We want them to really see who Jesus is and to see their value in him, and it closes the gap between God and us. So this morning's text really gives us some tools to close the gap. And we have to be willing to unpack certain thoughts and repack ourselves with new practices to close the gap. Are you for closing the gap? All those in favor of closing the gap, please say aye. Aye. Good. We're here. We're together. So let's take a look at this passage. We'll read through it, and then we're going to unpack it and repack our brains. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, 
I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Now, some things in that passage I think are clear to us in certain ways. Some things in that passage we understand with our current mental understanding, but there's some things that need to radically shift the way we do mission, the way we go with him. So, let's take a look at the first thing. Jesus says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. The first thing that most people who have been familiar with the Bible notice is, oh, it's the old two-by-two thing. And so they get the idea, we need to do mission together, which is true. We need to do mission as a community, with a partnership, and a sense of discipleship. But there is something deeper here that we need to grab hold of, or I should say, let it grab hold of us. And that is, what is our role? Is Jesus sending us out to save people? Is that what he's sending us out? Or is he sending us out for another role? Because if we go out thinking that somehow we can save people, we will come back ultimately frustrated. Because we can't. Can we? I can't even save myself. I can't save somebody. Only Jesus can save. Right? That's, that's, there's only one name under heaven by which... Men and women are saved. It's Jesus. Only Jesus is the Savior. Can we say that? Only Jesus is the Savior. So what is our role? This is so important. Our role is to prepare a place. It's just like how many of you did gardens this year before the, the rains came and ruined them? But when you do a garden, you know the first thing you've got to do is prepare the soil, right? That's what we're called to do. Prepare the soil. Kind of till it up. Get rid of the rocks. Clear out the weeds. Then you plant the seed. Then you cover it. Then you water it. But can you make it grow? No. I mean, you can go, come on, come on, come on. Grow. Grow. It's not going to grow. It can only grow because God makes it grow. But you see, if we start a mission and we, are, we have our heads down and we're determined that the only way this mission is going to be successful is that somehow we save these people, we'll miss what our role is. We are called to set the table and invite them to come and sit. We're called to open up and to remove barriers and places where people don't see the real Jesus. Almost all the time now when I'm in coffee shops, I'll kind of watch around, I'll look around, and I'll, I'll, I'll pray, God, give me a conversation with someone. And as they're talking about it, you know, when you're first meeting somebody, inevitably they're going to ask you that question, what do you do? And I'm always hesitant to play the pastor card. Because usually, once they do, they have their own version of what a pastor is, right? And they can shut you down, and that's it. So I'll stall the pastor thing. But eventually the pastor thing has to come out, because that's what I do. But I'll watch their face, and so oftentimes, especially with young people right now, when, like college-age students, when I'm talking to them, they'll, they'll, they'll say something like, you're a pastor? I said, yeah. You don't really look like a pastor. I say, why? Is it because I'm bald? No, no, but you're not, you don't really act like a pastor. Well, like, am I acting immature? What's going on? 
you know, what do you, what do you think? Well, you don't, like, seem real religious. And I say, oh, well, you know, I, I think religion sucks, really. And they'll look at me like, what? And, they, and, and then we'll start to unpack, what is it? If that's what you think about a pastor, what is it you think about this Jesus? What are the rocks in your garden that get in the way? What are the weeds that are choking off you seeing who Jesus really is? And this conversation unfolds. And do you realize that, I mean, it's very hard to deduce this by research, but the best researchers in evangelical Christianity realize it takes somewhere between 7 and 18 times for gospel presentation to hit a person before they make a decision to follow Christ. They say at least 7 they can count as many as 18. Now, again, it's really hard to quantify that because you could talk to someone and, you know, they, they go right in, but what you don't know is how many other times they've encountered Christ, right? Our job on mission is always to be part of the chain, always to be part of the people that God is asking to come and set the table. And he's going to show. Jesus loves to show up. Our job is to set the table and say, here is the master. Does that make sense? When that happens, then we're a lot freer in our missional work. We're not sweating bullets because, ooh, I didn't get to tell them everything about Jesus. And they didn't make a decision for Jesus. And they didn't join my church. Now, our job is just to prepare, set the table. Jesus establishes that, and then he goes on to establish one more thing. He says, listen, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, Tom did a great job talking about prayer. If you missed last Sunday, I encourage you to go online and listen to that. It's been really good. Those of you that heard it, did you pray for your person this week? Did you? I didn't always have my Tom Stewart guide sheet, but I did remember to pray. I would encourage you who are praying just to keep watching to see what the Lord is doing. But here's what I want to highlight out of this passage is do you really believe that the harvest is plentiful? Or have you heard so much, you know, read or, or talked or heard this thing that, oh, America is doomed. It's, it's a post-Christian nation, and we're, we're like the Titanic. Pretty soon we'll be swallowed up in ice-cold water and freeze to death. Have you heard that kind of stuff? It's out there. The reality is, is that the receptivity... To, to Jesus is higher among young people right now. They don't want old-time religion in terms of you giving them rules and regulations. They really want to know, if there is this person named Jesus who is the Christ, would you please introduce me? The receptivity is much larger. We don't hear that very often, though, do we? But this is not just here in our country. The harvest is massive in the world over. You won't read this in the news, but right now in Iran... The revival state is epic. It is phenomenal. It is of biblical proportions. More people have come to Christ in the last 30 years in Iran than the last 1,400 years. The harvest is plentiful. So you can be thinking, this is the part where you want to really just, what am I packing in my brain? Because you can look at people. Maybe they have heard the gospel. Maybe they have been presented. Maybe it's one of your loved ones. It's one of your family. You go, oh, it'd be so easy to give up because they're kind of past that. The harvest is plentiful. It is plentiful. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. 
people, if that's not true, then let's just close up and go home. But you talk to someone like Gary Earn who steps into a prison and watches a person who's there because obviously they've done bad things and they've been caught for those bad things. I didn't get caught. I got away with my bad things. They didn't. And now society has stamped their head. Bad things. You're in trouble. And Gary steps into that situation and he presents to them, listen, there is someone named Jesus who can take bad things and turn them into good. And will you give your life to him? And when they do, guess what happens? Bad things become good things and salvation happens. Is that not true? Can we jump up out of our chairs and go, yes? I mean, the harvest, the harvest is what... So I, I, I just see, I, I admire what Gary and other prison ministry people are doing because I've, what I've found is if you really want to find the right field, go and find some nasty people. <laughs> I'm serious. Find some nasty people. You know, Captain Jack Sparrow, find him. I mean, God wants to change those. He loves to show off. He loves to take those impossible cases because his Word is powerful at the salvation and their hearts change. If we don't have that, people, let's go home. It's true. It's real. That harvest is white. So, he's, so you, now you're like, okay, God, if it's white, help me because I, I'm not always finding it white. I'm not always finding it open. And, and these disciples, this is round two. Round one didn't go so well. In chapter 9, uh, the sons of thunder, James and John, are asking the Lord, do you want us to whack these people because they didn't receive you? I mean, he's, they're getting ready to call down fire and toast them. They're slow to learn. So we, we should be like, oh, okay, in my experience, I haven't, I haven't always found the harvest to be really open or wide. So what do I do, Lord? Well, he moves to this. And he gives us some things to think about. We've read this passage. And what I want to do is I want to unpack and give you three things to think about in a fresh way. It's so important you grab these things in a fresh way because it's radically different than the way that we've done mission in many respects, and it's way different than what the Christian church has done in the last 50 years, if not throughout history. But there it is in the book. I don't know why we missed it. First thing that Jesus says, do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. Now, in America... We love our stuff, don't we? I mean, I can think when I was a kid, you were lucky if you even had a one-stall garage because there wasn't as much stuff to be had. But then people started getting single-stall garages. But then they couldn't fit their car in because they had to put their stuff in. So they said, hey, let's build another stall. So now you have two-stall garages. So now you can maybe put your car in and your stuff. But Americans are never, like, have enough stuff, so they pack both stalls. And now you see houses with three stalls, with stuff. And not only do they have three stalls with stuff, but they have this tool shed in the back that has more stuff. And they have a secret storage place someplace downtown that has more stuff. We love stuff, don't we? If you want to join my support group, see me after the service. Stuff Anonymous. I mean, I got more stuff than I know what to do with. So when he, Jesus says, don't take your stuff, it's like, what? Really? What are you getting after, Jesus? And usually when we're on mission, we usually think we need to have the right stuff, the right answers, you know, the right equipment, the right resources. What is it that Jesus is getting at here? This is the part 
that begins to twist our heads. He's saying, make yourself purposely vulnerable. Put yourself out there where you're going to have a need. Make your need somewhat obvious. Because when you do that, it opens up a new platform of relationship. And the way that the kingdom can enter is way better. It closes the divide between those who have and those who don't have. Because what you're doing is you're living and demonstrating for them that you are willing to go first and be vulnerable and to say, I got a need. Would you help me? I got a need. Can you answer this for me? And if you're going to get into a relationship with someone and you're going to begin to offer to them answers or counsel or something in their life, maybe it's good that we start first. Right? You're not so sure. They're like, yuck, Mark. Not really. But this is what Jesus is saying. And what's interesting is sociologists call this phenomenon the Ben Franklin effect. But long before Ben Franklin was in existence, Jesus did this right in Luke 10. The idea is opening up a vulnerable space. So why is it called the Ben Franklin effect? When Ben Franklin first started in politics, he, like many people in politics or leadership, wind up getting an arch enemy. And there was this guy that had power and influence and, and income where he was badgering publicly Ben Franklin, belittling him. And Franklin was between elections and he thought, this is bad, what can I do? Ben Franklin had an interesting relationship with the Lord in and, and, and his process, but he began to think and consider different things. And he landed on this. He said, somehow I need to love my enemy. He found out that this enemy was also just an avid book collector and loved books. And books were, they were very expensive in that day, and to have many books was a huge deal. So he writes his archenemy a letter, and he says, I've understood that you have this one book that I've been looking for. I've always been curious to read it, and it's quite a collectible. Would you be so kind as to share your book with me? Well, Ben Franklin's enemy reads this, and he responds by saying, yes. And all of a sudden now, the tables begin to shift. And this guy that was an enemy, that all he could focus on was the differences he and Franklin had in their lives. Now they have this common bond that they both love books. And the bond goes deeper because Franklin had the audacity to ask for one of his books. And now, the next time that they meet on Congress's floor, they're like best buddies. And this guy is running around telling people about what a great guy Ben Franklin is because they share interests in books and they share books now. They're book buddies. And it completely switches this around. So what Jesus is saying is, as you move through, you know what? If you have something and they ask for it, give it. By all means, that's in another section of Scripture. But so oftentimes on mission, when we're looking to open up relationship, we're so focused on having to serve the person or tell the person or do something to the person. You know, all those pieces, you can open up a whole different space if you simply just say, can you help me? Do you know? What can, you know? And it changes the relationship. Does that make sense? Now, how many of you are really good at asking for help? Heidi is. Heidi, would you hold a seminar on how to ask for help? Because I'm terrible at it. I am. So one of the things that I'm asking you to begin to pray about is, Lord, would you help my heart learn how to make myself vulnerable and ask for help? The real 
core, I think, at least for me, why I don't ask for help is I don't like to be vulnerable. Honestly. I'm nervous. If you get in that close, what will you do? And so I've got to open up, trusting he's got me. We have to. If we're going to do real mission, it's part of what we have to do. Can you see the invitation? So he goes on. First thing is, he says, I want you guys to be vulnerable. Don't pack a bunch of stuff. Just get out there. Make yourself open. Then he says this. Don't greet anyone on the road. What? I thought we're supposed to be out on mission. We're supposed to be friendly and greet people. What do you mean, Jesus? Well, he explains. He says, don't greet anyone on the road. Instead, do this. And someone asked me after first service to explain this a little bit more. It's not that Jesus is saying, be as rude as you can to everybody on the road, even though many of us are doing that in rush hour traffic. What Jesus is saying is, listen, don't wander aimlessly. Remember, you are connected with me. I am in you, and I am going to guide you to people where you'll go, oh, this is who God wants me to talk to. Or I'm going to send people to you, and you're going to go, oh, God's sending this person to me. People of peace, that's what he's talking about when he's using these phrases that sound so strange to us. But really what he's saying is, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart as you navigate relationships. How many of you have developed a friendship or moved into a deeper conversation with someone just because he had a sense that this person was safe or friendly? Yeah, raise it up or high. Affirm other people so they know. Yeah, see, you're already doing this. Now, the reason that I'm mentioning this is as we get into talking about community, which is the next part of the sermon series, part of what we're going to ask you to do is begin to really live out following Jesus in your relationships. Rather than Brendan and I staying up late at night and putting everybody in a small group, we trust right now the Spirit of God has brought you here at Bridgewood because He wants to connect you to some people. Yes, we'll be friendly to everybody, but there's some unique people he wants to form a a spiritual joint with. And we're going to ask you to be led by the peace of Christ. Does that make sense? So that's what he's calling us to do, is to be led by the peace of the Lord and to recognize how he's working. Now, I'll give you one clue about people of peace. Is it hot in here? That's perfect, because all the guys go, yep, and the ladies go, no, it's fine. And we know we're good. All right. One one easy way to recognize someone is a person of peace, and you're going to go deeper with them, is you ask them for help, and they say, yes, I'll help you. Then you know there's something more here. It's not rocket science. So we're going to be moving in that. We're going to encourage you to move with us in that. That's so important. Now, when it comes to this idea of people in peace, sometimes there's a little bit of a mining and a discovery that happens around that, which is really what leads us into Jesus' final point here in this section of Scripture. And that is, he says, listen, as you notice these people of peace, what I want you to do is I want you to stay there. Once you've established this is my home base, stay there. Stay put. And this is so important that we, we allow ourselves to be part of a place with a group of people. So oftentimes where Brendan and I go uh, for coffee or for lunch, whether it's he and I or we're meeting with other people, we have certain places we go. 
So if we go to the tavern, unfortunately, we're boring to those people now because they know us and we know them. But our conversations are going deeper. If we go to Caribou Coffee, same thing. We know those people and we have conversations. And our conversations sometimes have gone to like, what do you guys do? And, you know, Brent and I kind of look at each other and we're like, all right, do we just blow them up and just tell them that we're pastors and we're flying under the radar or what do we do here? And, you know, so we'll talk with them for a little while, joke a little bit, and, and then eventually it comes out, we're pastors. And they go, no, you're not, because we're so religious. And we have our collars on. And then a conversation, and you go a little bit deeper. Now they're watching you, and they're going, okay, if you're a pastor, and I have a picture of a pastor this way, and you're doing that, or you're laughing, or you're joking with us, or you're interested in us, that's all of a sudden enlarging our idea of what kingdom people are like. And isn't the biggest problem right now with people coming to church what people think about the church? Isn't that the biggest problem? And if you practice this, if you do what Jesus says, a wonderful thing called social proximity happens. And social proximity is, is just the notion of you will develop relationships, they will go deeper, and will likely become friendships just by sharing time and space. Just by that alone. By being together. I spent over a year studying this. I know it sounds weird. Like, how could you spend a year studying that, Mark? But I'm a little nerdy when it comes to this. And there was some fascinating research where if all you guys were like college students, freshmen on the campus, and you're lost, you don't know where to go, they did this experiment. They gave you numbers when you came in the door. And you would sit down according to your number that was randomly given you. So Rich would be here, number one. Mark Spencer, number two. And here's what they found. As they randomly put these people together to share a proximal space, after four years, these people were three times more likely to have developed a friendship that merged out of that encounter just by sitting next to one another. In fact, the reason that you guys all have your chairs here, it's got to do with proximal space. I'm kind of comfortable with my people right here. My peeps are right here. And it just happens because you sit with them. Come on. And then every once in a while, you guys feel really missional, and you'll sit on the opposite side of the sanctuary. We're going to mess with Brendan today. We're going to sit over here. But we all do, we all look for a place. And the way that we mark this place in relationship usually is by what we wear. So the office nerds, that's what they wear. And the goss, that's what they wear. Most of you are like, that looks hot. Like these leather, I don't know what kind of pants those are, but they look like you dissolve in Minnesota. So I don't think they're in Minnesota. Anyhow, here's the deal. The thing about social proximity, it trumps markers. How can a Christian missionary go to a totally different country, William Carey to India? How, how can he go to a different culture and trump the barriers it happens by social proximity. It happens as he makes himself vulnerable. When you're in a new culture, you don't know where to go. Where do I get this? What do I do? I remember someone who moved to Germany, and uh, they were just learning the language, and they had been to language school, and so the, their first missional trip on German soil was to go to the store and buy orange pop. And when they went in, they spoke their best German in the boldest way they could. And you know what they ordered? I'd like a big bag of orange chicken poop. 
I don't know how that worked out. Maybe Matt sure can coach me through. But that moment, as awkward as it was, became a missional moment because they laughed. You know, all of a sudden now, the German person's going to help the missionary. That's not what you want. You don't want orange chicken poop. What do you want? And they go through this process. That experience takes them closer, makes them closer, breaks down barriers. All of a sudden now they're on equal footing. And then the person says, why are you here? Ah, glad you asked. What trumps those barriers is the willingness to have social proximity with people. Does it make sense? All these things are things that we can do all these things are contrary to our human nature. Is this not true? Going out making ourselves vulnerable? All those in favor say aye. See, you're like Mark, you're nuts. But Jesus says, no, if you're going to go where I go, you're also going to have to go as I go, which means I'm asking you, make yourself vulnerable. I'm asking you to share proximity. and Move past that. Here's the deal. If we'll do this, we will see lives transformed, including our own. And I have to say, I'm first in line to learn this. I'm not doing so well in this. But I'm convinced, after studying this passage, this is how we need to roll, because it's how Jesus rolls. Would you pray with me? Hey, wait. Look up here. The problem is, if we don't do this prayer moment, we're going to be rolling this way. Overloaded with baggage. So what we want to do as we get ready for this offering is we want to pray and invite Jesus to come and to take hold of us. Lord, we all have ideas about what it means to be on mission with you. And we're about to go to worship again and we're about to have communion and we're about to do a bunch of things. Would you invade our thinking? Would you transform our mind so that when we say we're going where you are going, we're also going as you go. Help us. Help me. I need help, Lord. I'm not good at this. But I trust that in your goodness, you will work, and we will see your mission manifest. In Jesus' name, amen.